Thank you, Brother Al. Already that passage is convicting me. I hope it's convicting you. Uh, This series in James has been certainly helpful for me. I hope for you as well, but it's very convicting, isn't it? I think we all have room to grow in one of these areas that James has described. Uh, It's very needed for our hearts. And this morning, the passage will continue that. It will step on all our toes. But in the midst of all this conviction, I do want to start by making sure you hear our pastoral heart for you, our Calvary family. We have certainly room to grow, right? According to James. But is God doing great things among us? Yes, he is. We see the spirit at work in each of you, our church body. You've been supportive of the search committee, even amidst setbacks. You've been serving faithfully. You've been sending encouraging texts and emails and messages. You've even stepped up and started new ministries in this time. You've been singing with excitement. On and on I could go. So well done, church. You're serving the Lord, and we're so grateful for each of you. And let me give you a passage that's been ringing in my ears all year long, kind of as a theme passage for me this year. Before I knew we'd be in this season of transition, the Lord laid this on my heart, and it's from a very obscure section of Scripture in the book of Haggai, chapter 2. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Uh, Sorry, it's a little small, but you can look it up on your own. Uh, Very encouraging passage. Haggai's writing to people who returned to the land after some terrible things had happened. The old temple had been destroyed. Uh, the, um, they were still under domination of Persia. They're back in the land, but they're trying to rebuild the temple. And they wonder to themselves, is God still working? Or have we been abandoned? Is God still working in our generation amidst all this chaos? And here's what Haggai says to encourage them. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, the governor, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. I encourage you this morning, in spite of however our church looks compared to yesteryear, in spite of however your life looks compared to the past or compared to other people, yet now, my friends, be strong. Be strong, my brother. Be strong, my sister. Be strong, all you people of Calvary. And let's work, for God is still with us, is he not? His spirit remains among us, so don't fear. And one day soon, the Lord Jesus Christ, the desire of all nations, what they're all longing for, he will come and all will be set right. And until then, he is still filling his temple with glory. The New Testament says that you and I are now the temple where the spirit dwells. And God's glory is being exalted in our lives. So keep at it. Be encouraged. Keep up the good work. The spirit remains among us. I see him working. Be encouraged, my brothers and sisters. Let us pray to start before we dive into James 4. And for this prayer, I'm going to use some words from the Puritans in the Valley of Vision. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, you are high and holy and exalted and victorious, and yet also meek and lowly, dwelling among us, humbling yourself even to the point of death on a cross. We love both of these aspects of you. We praise you, your lion and lamb. We stand in awe of what you're doing. Your spirit still remains among us. You are still working. We praise you for all you are doing. And yet you've brought us to this season of a valley where we are in the depths, and yet we look up and we see you in the heights. We're hemmed in by mountains of sin and chaos and and tragedy. And yet above those mountains, we behold your glory. Open our eyes to see it. Help us to learn this morning in this text, the paradox that if we go down, you will raise us up. 
The way down is the way up. To go low is to be high. The broken heart, as many of us have, is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. If we repent in our souls, we will see victory. To have nothing is to possess everything because Jesus, you are enough. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. To give is to receive. The valley, the lowest point, can be a place of renewed vision of you, our great God. Help us to see that and experience that in your word this morning. Help us to find your light here in our dark place. Help us to find life even in our death to ourselves. Joy in our sorrowing over our sin. Grace greater than all our sin. Riches in our poverty. Glory in the valley. Help us to see it this morning. Teach us, humble us by your word and may you be exalted in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's turn now to James chapter four, if you're not there already. And we're gonna take a turn to a very, very convicting passage, as I said. This isn't one of those passages that you should be elbowing your spouse and saying, man, I sure hope they hear this. They really need this. Or lean down and look at your kids. Are they paying attention? Somebody wake them up. They really need to hear this. Or those young people need to hear this. Or those old people need to hear this. This is not a passage that you should be thinking that, although we're all prone to do that, aren't we? Instead, this passage will hit each and every one of us square between the eyes, and all of us should be convicted by this and should repent. And what this passage shows us very clearly is that there are two signs, there are two choices put out before us. Which will we choose? James's call is to choose a side and make it God's. Choose God's side. That is the big overarching idea we find in this text. Well, when I first moved here to South Carolina, I was told some advice that I had to pick a side in a particular matter, and that was whether I would cheer for the Gamecocks or the Clemson Tigers. Very important decision to make. Many of you know I'm not a sports person, so I just kind of willy-nilly chose, eh, Clemson, why not? Orange is cool. Uh, but don't worry, uh, Wayne, for the right price, I could switch sides if you want to see me afterwards about that. I'm not very passionate about my team. But let's say I choose the side of Clemson and I'm going to go to a game. Let's say I go to the big game, Thanksgiving week, USC, Clemson. It's a big game. And bear with me here, but let's say I'm a Clemson fan, but I keep messing them up from the stands. Maybe I'm lobbing water balloons at the Clemson players, trying to knock them off. Uh, Maybe I'm yelling at them if they don't do everything exactly how I'm telling them to do. Maybe I'm starting protests and riots in the stands between the Clemson fans. Let's all protest. Let's cause a ruckus. And the the whole stadium is in chaos because of me. Or when they get close to a touchdown, I run out on the field and I tackle the Clemson players because I just don't want them to get a touchdown. But I claim to be a Clemson fan. I claim to be a Clemson fan. Or even worse, let's say I claim to be a Clemson fan, but I show up wearing Gamecocks colors. Now, Steve Delaney is a nice guy, but I'm pretty sure he would come after me for that. I don't know if I would last long. Now, that's the exact kind of fake fan that James is calling out here in this passage. People who claim to be a fan of Christ. Oh, I'm on Christ's side. I believe in all that. And yet, they're not fighting against the opposite team. Instead, they're starting fights amongst the players and fans for their own team. While the general is telling them the enemy is coming, they're in the cafeteria starting food fights amongst the soldiers. What kind of fan would that be? That's not the kind of fan we are called to be as Christians, and yet, sadly, that is what we see all too often in churches and amongst believers in our day and age, quarreling, fighting over silly, nonsensical things instead of fighting the real enemy. And he is real, and James tells us to resist him, the evil one. Instead, we're picking fights with our own side. So my challenge today is to pick a spiritual side and choose to cheer for that side, not start fights amongst the fans. Choose today whom you will serve, God or yourself. Choose a spiritual side. Don't try to have it both ways. Now, why do we see all this division and confusion in churches today? Why are there so many quarrels among us? That's the question James asks to begin this section of scripture. Look back at verse 1, and he asks a question, and he gives us the why behind our wars. What causes quarrels, or you could translate it, wars, and what causes fights among you? That's a great question. 
He could have put it this way. Why can't we be friends? Or why can't Christians just get along? Why do married couples fight? Why did you maybe argue on the way to church this morning? Why did your kids argue with you over dinner or you argue with your kids? Why are grandparents and grandkids so far apart that they can't even understand each other? Why do the politicians fight? Why do nations go to war? Why do terrorists attack innocent civilians? Behind all of these fights and wars, from the smallest to the most serious, James has one answer. And do you see it here in verse 1? What causes quarrels and fights? Your passions are at war within you. Or you could say within your members. Is he talking about our body's members within ourselves? Or is he talking about within the members of Christ's body, the church? I think it's both. The answer is the, the war within bursts out and becomes the war outside. There are external conflicts because there are internal conflicts between our passions and our own hearts. What does passion mean here? Perhaps your translation has it as pleasures or lusts. But note that this can be any desire. This isn't just a sexual desire, although that's certainly included. But it's any desire. We want what we want when we want it. And when we don't get it, we declare war. First Peter 2.11 says that these passions of our flesh are actually warring against us inside. There is a war in your heart this morning. Could be a war between various fleshly passions that are all negative and sinful. Could be a war, certainly, going on in each of us between the spirit that dwells within us and that fleshly nature that we all still have. There is war within and it bursts outside. Now, it's popular today to look for the solution to our problems or the cause of our problems and external things. Factors out there. Uh, that's what's causing problems. It's society. It's, it's an unjust system. It's the next generation's problem. Or it's the older people's problem. Or it's the politician's problem. It's my parents' problem. It's my spouse's problem. That's why there's so much quarreling going on. That's why my life is such a mess. That's why our country is in such chaos. It's all the factors out there. But we do well to follow the re-engage marriage ministry's advice Perhaps one of the best lessons uh, we learned when we were going through it, some of you in this program know this quite well, stay in your circle. Take your imaginary marker, draw a circle around yourself, do not include your spouse, do not include your kids, just you, and in there, in that circle, are the problems in your life. Now, do externals certainly impact us? Well, of course they do. But James says, look inside and you will see the source of quarrels and fights among you. We need to take the mindset of the author G.K. Chesterton when a newspaper asked him, hey, what's wrong with the world? And he replied to them, dear sir, I am. I am the problem. We all need to take that mindset. Because we can only fix what's inside of us. We can influence people. We can try to change them. But as we learn in Sunday school, the Spirit brings conviction. And so we must stay in our circle and work on ourselves. After identifying the passions at war within us, uh, James traces out what happens when those warring passions come out. When they burst forth out of our lives. He paves out the road of war. The road of conflict. And he uh, does this starting in verse 2 if you look down there. He says that we desire, or we lust, but we can't get what we want. So what do we do? He says, we murder. Well, that escalated quickly. Murder? I mean, surely, no matter how opinionated we may be, we wouldn't actually murder someone, right? Well, every murder starts at this very base level with the little tiny squabbles and disagreements that you and I have all throughout the week. And what I think James is calling us to is back to Jesus' words. His brother, remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, James probably would have heard Jesus say this himself, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, if we are angry with our brother, if we insult our brother, it's like we have murdered him. Very serious language. As one pastor put it, God does not want us to come into his presence with the blood of the saints on our hands. But based on your words this past week, your comments on social media, your dinner conversations, your gossip amongst the church members. Are you entering today? Not literally, of course, but symbolically, as if you have blood on your hands because of the words, the disagreement, the anger towards your fellow believers. But not only murder, he also says that we covet 
or are envious of others, and yet we can't get what we want. So we fight and quarrel, the same words as used in verse 1. Jealousy, envy, can wreck a church, can it? It can wreck a marriage, it can wreck a family, and social media has just made it worse, hasn't it? Man, how come they get to go on a vacation? I never get to. How come their family looks so put together and mine looks like absolute chaos? Newsflash, theirs probably looks like chaos as well. Uh, How come their kids visit them more often than mine do? How come their life looks so much better than mine? Envy inside versus outside, and we mistreat people who have it better than us. And then James concludes, and he says, you don't have what you want because ultimately you don't pray. And he's referencing more of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in chapter 7 of Matthew, ask and you will receive. James says, are you even praying for these desires that you have? They could be even good desires, but do you even take them to the Lord in prayer? Or do you just complain to others about these desires? Now, some of them might have objected and said, James, we have been praying about this. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. So why haven't I gotten what I prayed for? And he says it's because you're praying in a selfish way. You're praying to spend it on your passions. God's not a cosmic vending machine. We have to understand Jesus' words in context and ask and pray with the right motives. So yes, church, please pray, but we must evaluate our motives even as we pray. So let's think about our search for a lead pastor. Could it be that we have not because we ask not? Are you praying? Are you joining us in our 40 days of prayer? Or could it be that we are praying? I know many of you are, but God is not answering because we're praying for selfish reasons. We must evaluate our prayers through the grid that James gets us. Now, perhaps this section has confused you. How can a desire within me cause all these problems I see outside? Well, let's trace through some everyday desires that we have. And remember, they can be good. And let's see how they can play out into some of this chaos that James describes. Let's say you have a desire for rest after a long day. Ever have that desire? You pull in the driveway. I just want to take it easy this evening. I want to chill. Uh, But you feel some conflict inside because you feel a little bit guilty. Maybe I should spend time with the kids or maybe I should reach out to this person at church. And so you have that conflict inside and you walk into your house and somebody dares to interrupt your great evening plan. Oh, you had it all planned out. The couch was calling your name. But a child, a spouse, a roommate, somebody from the church gave you a call, and it's interrupted. And what happens? Those desires inside burst out, and you have conflict with the people who dare to interrupt you. And not once do you ever think to yourself, hmm, I should pray and ask God for help to rest and relax tonight. And so you have not, because you ask not. Or let's say you have a desire to be on time for church. Hey, that's a good desire, but it's causing you agony because the person riding with you, your roommate or your spouse or your kids are running late. And you have a reputation to uphold. Thank you very much for being on time and put together. And so what do you do? Your conflict bursts out and you snap at your kids, your wife, your roommate. Conflict comes out. But maybe you do pray. Maybe you do pray and you say, Lord, please rebuke my wife. Please rebuke my husband for the terrible sin of lateness. Oh, one minute late. That's a terrible thing. Well, that is not the type of prayer that God is going to answer. That's a selfish prayer. Or let's say you even have a desire for a better job or a better house or a better car, or perhaps even a desire for a spouse. A very good thing. And all these things can be good things. But... God hasn't answered that prayer. And so you have jealousy for those who do have those things that you desire to have. And you mistreat them. You critique them. You are critical towards them. And maybe you even pray for it, but you pray with selfish motives. We must evaluate our lives. Are we quarreling? Are we in a fight right now? Are we in a conflict? Well, I say to you with the authority of this text that the problem is you. Your passions are at war within you. And you may even be in the right. You may even be factually correct, but you could be doing it in the wrong way. Or you could be quarreling over non-essential things, which these two passages, I encourage you to read, 2 Timothy 2 and Titus 3, they warn us strongly against arguing over non-essential things. But after James paves this road of war for us and giving us a sad picture of what's going on in our heart, James then shows us the even sadder consequences of this war. Here's where these conflicts lead. Here are the consequences of this chaos. Look down at verse 4 and 5. 
Now, he could have talked here about church splits, about broken marriages, broken relationships between parents and kids. Those are all terrible consequences, right? But instead, his main focus is on the worst broken relationship we could ever have. And that is between us and God. And notice what he calls us in verse 4. Adulteresses. Spiritually unfaithful spouses. Spiritual adultery. This is very, very serious. He's using language that the prophets would have used for God's people in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself in Matthew 12 and Mark 5 used calling the people an adulterous generation. When God's people fellowship with the world. This is very serious. But skip down to verse 5 and you'll see another consequence of this chaos and another scriptural concept from the Old Testament. God is a jealous God, Exodus 20 tells us. Now you could translate this verse either as God's Holy Spirit is jealous for us or God is jealous for our human spirit. But either way, the point is the same. God is jealous for our hearts. He wants us like any good spouse would. He wants undivided loyalty and love because that's how his love is. It's a steadfast love. It's a loyal love. It's said. It's covenantal, faithful love. His spirit is dedicated to us. So he wants our human spirits to be dedicated to him. This is quite a contrast from the envy described of, of humans and in our conflict or in earlier verses. God, too, is jealous, but he's jealous for us not to be jealous and in conflict with others. The spirit cannot dwell within, cannot fill us if we have all these other fleshly desires warring within. He wants all of us. Yet, we try to have it both ways, don't we? A little bit God, a little bit of the world. Friends with both. Why can't we all just be friends? We can all just get along. In fact, one person said you could summarize the whole book of James under this idea of friendship. Whose friend are you? Are you God's? Are you the world's friend? What you say, how you treat the poor, how you deal with the things of life, your actions will prove whose friend you are. And by making God's people into your enemies that you fight and you quarrel with, you're actually making an enemy of God himself, he tells us in verse 4. This friendship language is more than we typically think of when we think of friends. This is not Facebook friends. Uh, God is not mad that you became Facebook friends with the world, but not Facebook friends with him. That's a very low view of friendship that we have today. The Greek word includes the idea of love as well. This is an allegiance, a loyalty. Described Abraham in chapter 223, a friend of God. Described Jesus in Matthew 11, the friend of sinners. Now, the word enemy is also very serious. That's what we were with God, right? And yet he died for us, Romans 8. He's made us, his enemies, into his friends. And not only that, but he's also made us friends of one another. All believers should be friends because according to Ephesians 2, he's not only reconciled us to God and fixed that broken relationship, He's also fixed all the divisions, all the separation between us as believers. He's reconciled us to each other. And yet, we turn around and we make God our enemy by starting up these quarrels and fights. Any disagreement among we believers actually calls into question the gospel itself. Because God has reconciled us together and yet we're putting up the walls that he tore down between us. And yet, in spite of us being his enemies, we know he is the friend of sinners. And he reached down and he took us who was, were his enemies. He made us his friends all by faith. And if you have not experienced the friendship of Jesus, oh, my friend, I hope you experience it today. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be friends with Jesus. He wants to be your friend. And for those of us who believed in him, he has made us his friend. But are we acting like it? That brings us to a word in verse 4 that perhaps you saw in the text and maybe you cringed a little bit. Maybe you got a little nervous. Uh, it's the word world, worldliness. What does that word make you think of? Does it make you uncomfortable perhaps thinking back to maybe countless sermons you heard growing up that weren't necessarily very biblical? Perhaps it makes you excited? I don't know. But how sad is it when the topic of worldliness comes up and James describes worldliness as fights and wars among us if we were to fight and war over what worldliness actually is. That doesn't make sense according to James. 
So what should we do instead? Well, we have to figure out what worldliness actually means according to Scripture. What does it mean to be a friend of the world and an enemy of God? We must go to the Scriptures, right? The Bible is our foundation. This is Reformation Sunday. We're going to be celebrating all the start of the Protestant Reformation. And and those folks fought and they died for this principle. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, is our foundation. The Bible is sufficient. Which means we shouldn't fudge on what the Bible says is worldly. We should call it out. We should avoid it. But nor should we make up things the Bible does not say and say that those things are worldly. If the Bible is sufficient, then it does not need your or my help to put up fences around it, our man-made rules to avoid worldliness. A seminary professor of mine wrote a helpful book called Love, Not the World, where he went through every major passage in the New Testament that talks about this concept of worldliness. I actually had the chart that he had of all these passages and the list of sins and the list of virtues. I have a copy of it at the Information Center if you want to do further research on this topic. But he found some key passages that give us um, some insight into it. Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. Ephesians 4 and 5 and 1 Peter 2 and 4, which I had you read this week if you're doing the reading plan. And then 2 Timothy 3, which we just did in community groups. And from these passages, we find two major categories, and I've mentioned this before. Uh, We find sexual sins, very clearly condemned, any form of immorality, but it could also include other desires like gluttony, greed, covetousness. And then we see some social sins, a lot of these, anger, selfish attitudes, using our tongue to, to tear down others, evil speech, and even a lack of submission to biblical authorities like the government or within the family. Now, here's a few other passages that mention this concept of worldliness with some things that they condemn, just to give a picture of the sort of things we don't think of as worldly that we all participate in. Earlier in this book, James 1.27, he says part of not being spotted or stained by the world is caring for the widows and the orphans. Or in Luke 12, Jesus says the Gentiles, the unsaved world, worries... But that should not be how Jesus' followers are. Worry is worldliness. Or John 17, how can we be distinct from the world? Jesus says it's going to be by our unity together. Or Philippians 2, man, this hits each one of us. How do we shine like lights in the world? Don't complain, don't grumble, don't criticize, says Paul. Or Colossians 2.20, Paul actually says that our legalistic man-made rules for asceticism can actually be elementary principles of the world. And then, of course, a familiar passage, 1 John 2, says, Do not love the world, and here's what the world is like. It has lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Do we love the world according to this list of sins? Are you participating in the life of the world by doing some of these things? Do you try to be its friends? Well, here's some evaluation questions that I think are going to hit each and every one of us based on these passages. Have you ever turned off a TV show turned off a movie because of how it was affecting you. Could be immorality, could be some other one of these things. Have you ever had to say no to something you watched? Or have you ever turned off cable news or talk radio because it was just making you too angry? Anger, according to these passages, is a form of worldliness. Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness, says James in chapter 1, verse 20. Now, it could be they're saying factual information but it could still be worldly if it's accompanied by rage and malice and some of these things condemned. It might be good to step away from it. Do you wear something to be seen by others in a certain way? The Bible does address modesty in a couple of passages, and what the Bible is concerned about is our heart. It's our heart. Are we trying to draw attention to ourselves in any sort of way, whether a sexual way or any sort of attention-seeking? You are trying to put yourself in the center of attention. So stop and think. Is what I'm wearing appropriate? Is it what the Bible has for me? Is it trying to draw attention to myself? Where, Where is my heart on this? Just stop and think. Or stop and think about this. Have you ever stopped your family in the middle of a conversation over lunch and said, hey, let's not talk about everything we didn't like that happened during the Sunday service? Or have you ever looked on a fellow believer that maybe was worshiping God with passion and excitement and called them worldly because you did not 
uh, prefer what they were doing. But you didn't have any Bible to back yourself up. This could be in either direction, old to young or young to old. Have you ever confessed to anyone your struggle with a sexual sin, with pornography? You know, we talk a lot about, as believers, this, this buzzword of transparency. We're all about it. But do we actually live it? Do we seek help for our areas of worldliness? If you are struggling this morning, I assure you, you're not alone. There is hope. And talk to us. Talk to someone. Now, it's the same for any of these forms of worldliness that I've described. We must be a safe place for sinners, right? A safe place for worldliness. Not a safe place to stay there. We want to be a place to grow, right? A place to belong. But let's be a church where people feel like they can run to us when they're struggling. Not feel like they have to hide it because everyone is just put together. Worldly pride and being formal and closed off actually breeds more worldliness because it forces people to keep things in the shadow. It creates a self-righteous, anti-gospel culture where we can't admit that we're sinners, even though we all agree and say and claim in theology, yes, we're all sinful, but we can't reveal it. How awesome would it be in this season of transition if we as a church experienced a fresh realness, fresh transparency, vulnerability, honesty with each other, revival. Do you want revival in our church? you want revival in America? What well, starts right here. It starts right now in your very heart, staying in your circle, confessing your sins to one another, praying for one another, and God can heal, as we'll find in James chapter 5. God will work with a church that's submissive to his plan. So evaluate your own heart for worthiness. I guarantee you it is in each one of us. If one of these sins didn't hit you, you might need to re-review them because we all fall short. And brothers and sisters, there is great danger in compromising with the world and saying things are okay that are biblically not. Could be homosexuality, drunkenness, sins easily overlooked among my generation. I do not want us to be that church, nor do we as pastors want to be the pastoral team that compromises on clear biblical truth just to appear hip. I don't want to be a millennial who just runs to the opposite extreme just to make a statement. But let me also warn the older generation. Beware parents, beware grandparents, the Bible warns us repeatedly over calling things worldly or unlawful that are man-made things, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for that. There is danger in compromising on clear scriptural things. There's also danger in adding to the scriptures and saying things are unbiblical that are not. And James calls out squabbling over such things worldly. We must be people of the scriptures. A friend who was new to this area came from uh, another place. He noted to me an observation he made after being here a few years. He says, y'all fight about a lot of things in these Greenville area churches. Hmm, I think that's true. But what you do not do so much is quote scripture in your arguments. Either side, no matter what the issue is, you don't actually use scripture to form your opinions. We have a lot of opinions, but not a lot of Bible. How sad is that? Let that not be said of our church. Let us be people of the scriptures, rooted and grounded in it. I do not want that to be said of my generation. No matter what has happened before, let us, as for me and my generation, serve the Lord and say with Martin Luther that unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. God help me, here I stand, I can do no other. God help us stand as a church on the word, not our preferences. Spirit, would you help us speak boldly against what you call as worldly and not impose our own ideas upon them. Now, if you have reason to believe that me or any pastor is acting in a worldly way, we want you to tell us, but please come with clear scripture. We must, we must hold each other to the scripture, and there is a time and place for feedback that can be done in a kind and gracious way. James is not saying never bring anything up here, but he's saying make sure it's scriptural and make sure you come with a kind attitude. And I know many of you have, and I always appreciate hearing that. 
As many of you know, uh, Carissa and I took a trip to Colorado some weeks ago, and that's where I grew up. And one sad part of the trip was we drove up the Poudre River Canyon, a place Dad and I spent many, many times hiking, camping there. And in 2020, after we had moved here, that area experienced the Cameron Peak Fire, the largest fire in Colorado history. And it's just been devastated. The canyon full of burned trees, bare wilderness. It's a sad thing to see based on what it once was. And yet, in the middle of all that chaos and destruction, there's these beautiful groves of aspen trees. I don't know if you've ever gotten to see Colorado Mountain Aspen in the fall, but it is beautiful. I wish I could have a picture of that particular grove in my mind. Here's some uh, similar to it that give you a sense of that bright golden yellow. And in the midst of all those black burned trunks, to see that yellow was, was a sight to behold. It was beautiful. It felt like something out of Tolkien. Uh, it stood out so brightly. You could call it almost like a city on a hill, a realm of elves and magic in the midst of a land of shadow and destruction. And that's what the Bible calls us to be, right? We are not to be friends of the world, he says very strongly. That makes us enemies of God. Instead, we are to be friends of the friend of sinners and to be like him and to be distinct from the world. How can we do that? Do we need to, to, to externally look kind of weird? Is it whoever can look the weirdest is the most unworldly? Is, it, is that how it is? Should we give up all our electronics? Should we just try to dress weird or listen to weird music? Or is it all about the externals? No, it's a much simpler and actually much harder way. It's having transformed hearts that actually love each other, that actually love Jesus. But if we fight and devour each other, why would the world want to join us? They can get enough complaining on Twitter or Facebook if they so desire. Why would they want to join a church where that's all that happens in our midst? That's not distinct. That's not shining bright. That's not being known by our love as we saw in John. But the world is desperate, my friends. The world is crying out for a truly countercultural movement that looks distinct, that loves, that is welcoming, that doesn't tolerate sin but helps one another grow. The world is desperate for it. That's what the politicians are, are raging about, but they can never achieve it. That's what the protesters are crying out for, although they don't know it. They're looking for what we have. They're looking in the wrong places, but we can offer it to them. A place that shines bright in a world that is so, so dark. Are we living like we are that city on a hill? Let us not be, brothers and sisters, like the church of Ephesus in Revelation, that Jesus had a call out because they had all their doctrine right, but they didn't love. Nor let us be like the church of Thyatira that loved really well, but didn't have their doctrine right. Oh, let us not be either one of them. Let us be truth and love. That is something countercultural that the world is looking for. But where is the hope in all this? Is this one of those passages that just ends us in despair? Okay, we're worldly. I see it. Man, I feel so bad. No, there is hope for sinners, for worldly people like you and I are. And the hope is in humility. Look down at verse 6, and you'll see a beautiful turn that James has here with five simple words, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. More than what? Well, I think what he's saying here is grace is more than anything those evil worldly passions can promise us. More than anything our fights and wars can promise us, there is more grace. Grace greater than all our sin. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. For all our worldliness, God gives more grace to overcome it. And grace wins every time. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James quotes here to give evidence for this from Proverbs 3.34. And it's really a concept he could have pulled from many different places because it's repeated over and over again in Scripture. From the prayer of Mary to Jesus' parable of the tax collector and 1 Peter 5 to Jesus himself who describes himself as gentle and lowly in Matthew 11. He is humble himself. Here's the principle. If you go up, God will lower you. But if you go low, God will lift you up. Does that lowliness, going low, describe you? Or does loftiness describe you? 
We Christians are low people. We're the only humble people around because we realize just how bad we are, right? We don't think we're better than other people. We describe ourselves as the chief of sinners. We go as low as we can. No one's beneath us because we're at the very bottom. The door to the spiritual life, as one person put it, is a dog door. You have to go low to be able to get through it. You have to go low. You have to repent of pride. That's what he's calling for here, repentance. And he fleshes out what this humility looks like in the verses to come. He gives us a picture of how we can turn from worldliness to receive God's greater grace and enable us to repent. He paves for us, just as he paved for us, the road of war and conflict. Now he's paying, paving for us a road out of there, a road of repentance. And he starts by actually making it a little more difficult, this road. And he starts with probably the hardest command for we Americans in all of Scripture. And that's this. Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Ooh, we don't like that word, submit. We're strong, independent Americans. We don't need anyone. And yet, he calls us to go so low as to submit. Not my will, but yours be done. I surrender to you. In the words of Augustine, Lord, command whatever you will. Command us, Lord. We are at your service. But also, oh Lord, please give what you command because we cannot do this on our own. We need your help to submit. And then he continues down this road of repentance and he says the opposite. He says to resist. Resist the evil one, the devil. 1 Peter 5 parallels this passage and warns us of the roaring lion who seeks to devour us. Resist him with firm faith. Satan is a lion. But as we sang, there is a greater lion who's also a lamb who can conquer and has conquered the lion. Satan roars, the song said, but he can't harm us because God is for us. Our Savior crushed the serpent on the cross and he promises in Romans 16 to crush Satan under our feet as well. In his power, we can overcome. One little word shall fell him. He will flee from us. And James gives a wonderful promise for sinners next in verse 8. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If we run like the prodigal son towards home, he'll run so much faster toward us. And we won't even be able to get our confession out before he's wrapping us in a hug and lavishing us with grace and gifts. We don't deserve to be able to draw near to God. We're full of sin. And yet he invites us, draw near, come, come to me and you will find rest you will find forgiveness. The blood of Jesus has given us access to God's presence. And he will come near to us now through the Spirit's work on our lives. And then one day he'll come so near that he will return and set all things right. And we look forward to that day. And then he calls us, fourthly, to cleanse ourselves, to purify ourselves. This has got to be you parents' favorite verse for mealtime. It'd be a great one to find at Hobby Lobby and put up over your kitchen sink. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's a good one. Cleanse. This is what Jesus did for lepers. This is what James calls us to do from the world. Cleanse yourself. Be unstained by the world. We are sinners. We're messy, but he's pursued us to forgive us, to cleanse us. That happened at salvation. We were cleansed, but James calls us to do this every day. Cleanse your hands. 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take your dirty hands that maybe you've used to, to be unkind this week. Remember, blood on our hands to quarrel or whatever worldly way you have. They're stained by the world and yet you hold them up to God and he will pour his lavish grace upon them and he will cleanse them. In fact, he is so humble that he'll even stoop down to not only cleanse our hands, but wash our feet. And not only that, he'll purify the inside too. He says, purify your hearts. Our hearts are so prone to be double-minded. And he said back in chapter 1 that to be double-minded, to try to have it both ways, to doubt God is to end up unstable in all your ways. So turn away from that and ask God to cleanse you, to purify your double-minded heart. And while you're at it, be wretched, mourn, weep, turn laughing to mourning, and joy to gloom. Well, what an encouraging verse this is. What a Debbie Downer James is here. But James is remembering the words of Jesus, his brother, who said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And sin does call for mourning, a godly sorrow that genuinely repents. 
The promise is if we mourn over our sin now, one day he will return, set all things right, and there will be no more mourning. We will be truly blessed in the new heaven and the new earth. But this is a good rebuke for us. Do we laugh over sin? Do we make light of the things of the world? Specifically, he's been calling out church division in here. Do we laugh at church division? Oh, we make satire. We, we make jokes about the church that splits over the color of carpet or the worship wars or the ridiculous things that churches fight over. God does not see that as a laughing matter. He sees that as something we should cry about when the people of God are divided over non-essential things. When was the last time you cried over something like that? When was the last time you cried over your sin? may not even be physically, but in your heart, you are repentant. You are grieving over your sin. That's actually one sign of our salvation. If you're struggling with assurance of salvation, ask yourself, when I sin, do I just huh, not feel anything? Well, if the Spirit's truly inside, you will feel this guilt. You won't feel content in your sin. You will come back. So let us be people that take sin so seriously that we repent of it with mourning. And then he ends this road of repentance with one last summary command. He repeats that word from earlier, humble yourselves, go low, and he will lift you up, verse 10. And that's what Jesus experienced. He had no sin, and yet he still went low. Philippians 2 says he went so low that he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. He was lifted up on the cross, but that was really him going low as low could be for our sins. And what happened to him? Well, God highly exalted him, giving him a name above every name. He went low and God exalted. And that is the path we follow along with him. We go low and we are raised up. The way up is the way down. So in conclusion, we've seen that we must pick a spiritual side and we must choose to cheer for that side, not fight with the fans. When you're cheering for your team, your focus is not on you, but on the one, the team you're cheering for. I mean, you don't have any time for yourself. That's humility. Putting yourself out of the picture, and some of you have experienced this. I know when I went to a Clemson game, I asked, why are all these people standing this entire time? Can we sit down? No, they're too excited. They're cheering their team on. If you've seen my wife watch an Ohio State football game, you'll, you'll understand that as well. No time for anyone else. They're focused on the team. They're cheering. That's what humility looks like. Are we so enraptured by Jesus that we're cheering for his victory in the world, for him to come again, for him to work in our hearts? We don't have time for fights amongst ourselves. But what does this mean in our everyday life? Well, James gives us instructions for that as he draws this long section on speech all the way really back to chapter one. He draws it to a close with a very clear command. He says, do not speak evil of one another, against one another, brothers. In verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Here's a one another command that James will be covering in his class on Sunday night, starting tonight. He couldn't be any clearer. Yet how often do we neglect this clear, simple command and choose to speak evil of others? That's what the unsaved world does to us, right? They speak evil of us. They speak evil of each other. Why would we participate in that? Why would we cause a riot in the stands when we're supposed to be cheering on the team? Because we're double-minded. We haven't picked a side. And he says, by, by speaking evil of others, we're actually violating the law. The law, very clearly, in Leviticus 19 says, no form of slander. Do not speak evil. And yet we claim to be above the law. Well, I know the Bible says not to you know, speak evil of others, but it doesn't really understand how to win the culture war. We've really got to be nasty and unkind in order to win. Or I know God says to love our enemies, but that's just really being quite sissy. I have a much better way. Let us criticize other people. No, James says, we must not speak evil. If we do that, we're saying we're better than the law when actually the law is what judges us. We're claiming to be the lawgiver, but there is no opening in the Trinity for us to claim to have the power to give law. There is only one judge and lawgiver, and he does not share that power. There is no place for us to exalt ourselves. We instead go low and submit to God's command. The Spirit is the one who convicts. So that's my closing challenge. Here it is for your week. One application for you. Go the whole week without saying a critical comment about anyone. 
Ooh, boy. Can you make it out of the auditorium? I don't know. Uh, this is a hard one. Uh, this is a hard one. Uh, my teacher gave us this challenge in undergrad, and it was like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class, and I didn't make it those two days, I hate to tell you. Uh, it's a hard, hard challenge. But if we focus on the touchdown, we won't have time to be fighting amongst ourselves in the stands. But I can't do it on my own. It's impossible. Exactly. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to help you. Turn to him, and he will strengthen you to follow him. One last Martin Luther quote. Uh, This is actually the start of the 95 Theses that he nailed to the door in Wittenberg 506 years ago this week. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is our life, this repentance of the world. This is the road paved out for us, not the road of war. Let's leave that road of our desires warring, and let's travel daily the road of repentance. It goes on and on all throughout our life, but it is worth it. Jesus is enough. And so I call you, church, repent of your worldly ways. Make divisions right that may require setting a meeting, that may require physically going low, whether here at the altar as we pray and close the service, whether in your room, you may need to get down on your knees just to visually remind yourself of submission and repentance. But let us choose to repent of our criticism, not be like the world with our wars and fights, and choose to love one another and follow the example of Jesus, who humbled himself, to die for us. And in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. That is a prayer we need for this week. And after I pray, we're going to sing a song that is based on those words of Jesus. And I want it to get stuck in your head. You may not know it. You may need to just listen to it as it's sung, but I want you to try to pray it. I want you to get this stuck in your head or another song that speaks of this to remind yourself, not my will, but yours be done. I submit to your way, Lord. Let it get stuck in your mind. Let this be your prayer for this week as we go forth with the challenge to not criticize one another. Let us pray and ask for help. Oh, Father, we need you. Command what you will. We are your servants. We submit ourselves to you, our general, our captain, our coach. You are in charge. We are not. And we repent and we turn from trying to be in charge or pretend like we're the lawgiver. Oh, forgive us, Lord. Restore that brokenness in our hearts. Turn us, turn our church, turn us individually, turn our marriages, turn our families, turn every relationship toward you, to draw towards you because we know you will come towards us. Your spirit is still here working. May you work in a powerful way to bring us revival, honesty, truth, confessing to one another if we need to confess. Only your spirit can do this work. And so we ask you, please, oh, please work. Enable us. Give us the strength not to be critical of one another this week. Give us this prayer ringing in our ears all week long. Oh, not our will, Lord, but yours be done. Command whatever you want of us, Lord. But please give us strength to do what you command.